This is CSAP's Science and Policy Podcast from the University of Cambridge, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. Where might we see the newest frontier for potential future conflicts? This episode turns our attention to the increasing militarisation of spaces that are hostile to human life, at least in the ecological sense. The deepest oceans, the coldest continent and the outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere have all worked their way onto the geopolitical agendas of many of the world's most powerful states. Technological developments have aided this interest, from the artificial jellyfish that patrol the deep ocean for the purposes of surveillance, to the increasing necessity of crucial geostationary satellites. It is perhaps our growing dependency on these spaces for our political and economic affairs that renders them all the more sensitive to conflict. Are the existing treaties and international legislations that protect these areas from misuse enough? Or will they need to be revised and adapted to guard against hostile military and technological agendas? This episode explores the different geopolitical framings that prevail when states talk about these remote and increasingly contested spaces. Hi, I'm Rob Doubleday. Today, in the final episode of our series on science and policy, Antarctica, space and the deep ocean, we're exploring the role these places play in geopolitics. You've just heard from Alice Millington, a policy intern here at CSAP. Throughout today's episode, we're joined by Royal Holloway Professor of Geopolitics, Klaus Dodds, Dr Mark Hilborn, space policy expert from King's College London, and University of Toronto environmental sociologist, Professor John Hannigan. Turning first to you, Klaus. So the, the, the starting question really is to, to ask you how Antarctica is now featuring in sort of the geopolitical moment that we're living through. One way to think about how the Antarctic has really changed over the last couple of decades is, I think, to probably just say something about what was the the norm, if you like, in terms of how we thought about the Antarctic. So if we just go back 50 or 60 years to the International Geophysical Year of 1957-1958, we had an extraordinary 18-month-long period of scientific investigation into the Antarctic, the oceans, the atmosphere, and outer space. So, so whilst everybody is probably more familiar with Sputnik circling the Earth, actually a great deal of activity was focused around the Antarctic. And one of the things that came out of that was a recognition that apparently remote spaces are intimately connected to planet Earth and indeed beyond. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, you're often here in the Antarctic is it's a wonderful place for astronomers to study outer space. And nowadays, of course, outer space, particularly things like GPS, satellite communications, is essential for safely operating in the Antarctic. Now, in those days, 60 odd years ago, the Antarctic was really overwhelmingly framed as a continent for science. It was very, very common to hear the phrase, Antarctica is a natural laboratory. And the Antarctic Treaty that helps to govern the prevailing geopolitics from 1959 onwards absolutely puts science and international cooperation center stage. Were there also concerns about sort of national advantage, about economic exploitation and and competition, or was it really completely about sort of science as a cosmopolitan human endeavour? Were were there tensions back then? Yes, so that's a really important point. So I think on the one hand, as I say, you'll have this sort of dominant framing 
Antarctica, this almost this paradise for scientific cooperation. On the other hand, science was absolutely a cover story for other kinds of interest, some of it which was strategic advantage, some of it was about resources, and some of it which, frankly speaking, was trying to hold on to various territorial claims that uh, affected the continent. And in 1957-58, there were, and indeed there still are, seven claimant states. The United Kingdom is one of them. Interestingly, the Soviet Union, now Russia, and the United States have always reserved the right to make a territorial claim. Everybody else beyond those seven plus two rejects any territorial claim to the Antarctic. So you've got this sort of really wonderful tension, quite productive tension between something being thought of as this sort of cosmopolitan space, as you noted, but also something, in this case, an enormous space, which is geopolitically contested, and that remains today. The starting point for this this series of podcasts was observation that technologies, both in terms of sort of autonomous vehicles, but also data transmission and interpretation, have changed the way that humans can interact with remote spaces. Has that changed the way Antarctica's featuring in, in geopolitical discussions or, or, or imaginations? Well, I think one of the things worth bearing in mind is that the human encounter with Antarctica, in terms of the direct encounter, I should say, is only about 200 years old. So this is an incredible recent part of the human story in terms of actually doing things in Antarctica. And for throughout that 200 years, Antarctica has been harvested in at least two fundamental ways. It's been harvested in terms of its resources, such as whales, seals, fish, but it's also been harvested in terms of data, in terms of aesthetics. It's been a place where people have come to Antarctica and extracted something from it. Some of it may be very beautiful in terms of paintings, literature, but some of it is also about hard data, you know, not just science for science sakes, but also, for example, data about whale numbers, fish stocks, tourism, also involves data collection. So this has been a place that has been commodified as well as datified. And where do you see the sort of the current trajectories? I mean, how how you've talked about the the, the geophysical the, the, the international geophysical year and and the the continent for science and how, how is that? working out at the moment. So I think that's a really important point in terms of a shift. So if I take us towards the more contemporary, I think it's worth saying that the Antarctic Treaty system, uh, that's the sort of governance arrangements, uh, used used to proudly announce that scientific information, data more generally, was freely shared amongst all the parties. Now, what I think has happened in more recent times is that actually data knowledge generation has become a great deal more competitive. In other words, countries recognize that scientific data and knowledge exchange is caught up in geopolitical dynamics. But also when it comes to things like fishery science, you can really see the tensions laid bare. And to put it very simply and straightforwardly, if you are a fishing nation such as China and you want to fish and extract more from the Southern Ocean, you will have a very different view about fisheries science compared to a country like the UK or New Zealand that tends to be more conservation orientated. So what we're seeing at the moment is a great deal of tension 
over how data and science, indeed, more generally, is practised and interpreted. Do you have a sense that the, the treaty system, as it's evolved over the last 50, 60 years, is fit for purpose? I mean, what, what, do, you, do you see it being able to accommodate these tensions and these changes that we're living through? Well, over the last 60 years, the treaty system has accommodated lots of tensions and changes. But bear in mind, when it was negotiated in 1959, there were only 12 parties, China, India, Brazil, you know, the countries from the global south, as, you know, as we say, were not party to this. So I don't think if you were starting again in 2021, 2022, you'd be able to negotiate the Antarctic Treaty as it currently stands. There are lots of really notable features that I hope will prevail, such as demilitarization. But on the other hand, I think what we've seen is the globalization of the Antarctic. And what we've got is these competing visions. We still have that sort of continent for science, but we also have a resource frontier vision. And we also, I think, have, and it's never gone away, is the Antarctic as a contested geopolitical space. In other words, claimant states, counterclaimant states, shouldn't be forgotten that Britain's claim overlaps with Argentina's and Chile's big tensions around that and the wider South Atlantic. So you've got these contested framings, and at the same time, you've got environmental groups, as they have done for the last 30 years, saying it should be a world park. You know, this, 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 should, this remarkable continent shouldn't have any excessive resources extraction, and it really ought to be seen for what it is, an extraordinary wilderness. But bear in mind, of course, climate change is increasingly making itself felt. So whatever we do or don't do in the Antarctic, the ice sheets are still going to melt. What's your sort of greatest hope for how the geopolitics of Antarctica will evolve in, in the coming years? Do you see you know, gra grounds for optimism where, where we are currently? I think one of the grounds for optimism is embedded actually in the Antarctic Treaty itself. So a key feature of all governance in this part of the world is via consensus. Now, I know we often look upon consensus in a slightly sniffy manner and say lowest common denominator, often weak governance. But actually, consensus has also been the saving grace of this regime. In 1982, after Britain and Argentina had fought a short, a bitter war, they were still able to sit down together and talk about Antarctic matters, even though the two countries had no diplomatic relationship with one another at that point. So I think one of the things we can be optimistic about is that the Antarctic remains quite an exceptional space for cooperation and collaboration. But we shouldn't also, I'm afraid, be overly optimistic. China wants to do more things in the Antarctic, and that is not going to change anytime soon. You know, the Southern Ocean is tied up in Chinese thinking about, for example, food security. So those kind of hard realities are not going to change. So I'm not going to sort of say, for example, the world would be a better place if everyone gave up their territorial claims in the Antarctic. I actually think that would be a disaster. I think for better or for worse, those territorial claims have acted as a productive tension that has arguably actually introduced restraint precisely because the Antarctic is not unclaimed, even though those claims are contested. So I think, in a sense, be careful what you wish for really would be my watchword. The geopolitics of Antarctica is complicated, but on the other hand, there are lots of checks and balances, some of them quite subtle, that in a sense make it possible to say that this is still the only continent that has never experienced conflict or war.
I mean, several people have talked about the governance of Antarctica as a sort of model that could be learned from or, or, or replicated. And, you know, we've talked about space and, and the proliferation of objects in, in orbit around Earth and the need to think of a way of governing near-Earth space. Likewise, the, the deep seas, as, as humans are able to exploit and explore these more easily. Do you have a sense that Antarctica do, does offer a model or... Is it more, as you've suggested, so historically kind of contingent that actually it's a bit of a one-off? Yeah, I mean, I think that the Antarctic Treaty system offers you two, in a sense, slight counterexamples. On the one hand, the Antarctic Treaty in itself inspired a whole series of follow-ups that I think were arguably for absolutely for the global good. And the key follow-up it inspired was making a particular part of the world a nuclear weapon-free zone. So that inspired a whole series of initiatives elsewhere that didn't spare, of course, Pacific Islanders and others from nuclear testing, but it did inspire certain parts of the world to in, in, indeed follow the lead of the Antarctic Treaty. On the other hand, as you note, I think rightly, the Antarctic Treaty is a product of its time, negotiated by 12 states, dominated by the Anglophone community in particular, with close allies like Norway. And at the same time, both the United States and the Soviet Union built a system that absolutely suited their geostrategic interests. One of the things the treaty does is to say, you can go and do anything you want within reason across the polar continent. In other words, there's a very special article in that treaty that says that the territorial claims are effectively suspended. What you can't do, I'm afraid, is then just think you can apply that to other places, whether it's the Arctic, the oceans, or space, because the Arctic, of course, is an inhabited space. And of course, the oceans have their own legal regime. It's called UNCLOS. So again, you're not, you should not conflate and confuse these spaces. They have their own geopolitical histories, and legal regimes. Is there anything you'd add to that? I think one of the other things that's really become quite striking is how countries such as India and China have seized upon the idea of the third pole in the Himalayas, in, in that sort of part of Central South Asia, as a way of projecting their polar power credentials. So it's very common, for example, if you listen to a presentation by a senior Chinese official, he or she will show you a map where it places China at the heart of things and three poles are marked up, making it clear that both countries, this would be true of India as well, see themselves as tripolar states and they're not going to be excluded from anything involving the Arctic or the Antarctic. Well, that's a great addition. Thank you very much, Klaus. That's been fascinating. Thank you, Klaus. Now, turning to you, Mark, if I could just begin by asking you, so what are the sort of current geopolitical questions that are coming to the fore now that, you know, technologies are enabling humans to make more and more use of near-Earth space? Well, first of all, I suppose when we talk about near-Earth space, it's important to think about what that actually means. Where we're interested in are really the kind of main orbits, if you like, low Earth orbit, uh, medium Earth orbit, and geostationary orbit. So we might be talking beyond that, but that's generally where most of our activity currently is. And, you know, our society is increasingly dependent on assets in all those different orbits for a whole range of services, whether those 
you know, maybe most importantly, things like TV and radio, <laughs> but other things like GPS signals, which are at the heart of a number of things that we do. And those are absolutely critical now to things like banking, stock markets, um, a number of military elements, and even things like our electricity grid and, and supply, you know, that's governed by the, the what's called a position navigation and timing signal that comes from our, our GPS systems. So that's becoming really fundamental in, in, in modern life, everything we do. So, so we're really dependent on those assets for many different elements. Elements. Thinking in terms of debates in the UK, I mean, we've seen in the, in the fallout of, of Brexit and questions over sovereignty, one of the sort of tricky issues, one of many, has been around participation in, in European global positioning satellites, you know, and, and, and where the UK sits with respect to that, or, or whether it should have its own sort of sovereign capability. So is the UK unusual in, in thinking of these questions in terms of its sovereignty and it, its own position in the world? Or, or, or are many countries questioning their, their role in space in similar ways? It's not unusual. I, where it, I suppose, is unusual is the scale of cost for a single nation to do something like this. So Russia's done it, China has done it, the US obviously has done it, and, and Europe is doing it, and the UK was previously part of that. So the UK will have access to, you know, certainly the, G, the US GPS systems and the Galileo systems, but it won't have the encrypted element any longer in the in the Galileo system. It's entirely reasonable to, to think that this is a necessary sovereign capability and this is what the UK is currently thinking about, how much it needs to develop of its own and how much it needs to work with other nations in terms of using or accessing those capabilities of those data. So, so probably a, a discrete sovereign GNSS system, right, you know, global positioning satellite system, is beyond the scope financially of the UK, but where it looks, looks to contribute at the moment is with the investment in the OneWeb and what we're possibly going to see in the next generation of those satellites is a system that, that helps the resilience of the GPS system. So it's like a, a, a helper system in, in a sense. Um, and this is maybe the extent of where the UK can usefully position itself financially and um, in terms of technology. But this it, it is a fundamental system. And it's, you know, there's a question as to how much you can rely on allies, however good they are, entirely for these kind of systems. So that's becoming a real vulnerability or, or almost an Achilles heel in some respects, our need for these signals for whether it's military or, or more broadly in terms of security of the state generally, we're more and more reliant on these. And we will need to find, I suppose, other systems upon which we can rely to give us that kind of uh, capabilities those elements. So it's interesting that, that as the, the picture you're painting is one of current dependency, but perhaps increasing dependency for delivery of, of important services on satellites in space. And the point you're making is that only very few countries will have the resources to maintain a kind of independent system. So most countries will be dependent on, you know, some sort of what, buying into or sharing some globally managed or sort of multi-party managed system. For for things like GNSS systems, yeah, the GPS type systems, that's the case. Yeah, not many states can actually have the wherewithal to create that kind of constellation. I mean, Space is increasingly characterized by more and more states having a stake in space. But that kind of system is one that's still the preserve of the few, I suppose. But the U.S. has offered this um, as a free service, really. You, you know, it used to be a, a highly classified military system, and that's been opened up by President Clinton. 
And so it's really been a kind of global service for a long time. But states have this question about, you know, how, how can we really rely on it? And states see a sort of soft power element of this as well. So for instance, China, by developing it, creates a number of, of capabilities, but then it can start to, you know, other states can rely on Chinese systems rather than American systems. And as it sells arms, and there's, those rely more increasingly on the Beidou system, there's a sort of soft power element to that as well. So, so having these systems can pay a number of dividends but as you say, it's something that not every state can make or produce and manage on its own. Um, they require, you know, quite a constellation of, of satellites. But we are seeing, you know, the space environment is increasingly, they often say, congested, um, contested and competitive. We're seeing many more states entering into space. More states are able to launch into space. We're seeing many more satellites in space. And these aren't just states, as you know, we're all well aware now, people like Elon Musk and SpaceX and, and the number of non-state actors are having an increasing um, role in space. And in fact, in terms of numbers are now the dominant players, you know, they're launching vast numbers of satellites. So this is this changes then the complexion of the entire domain. So it looks very different than it did say during the Cold War. If you look at the Cold War, about 95% of the launches were by the US and the USSR. And about three quarters of those were classified military payloads. But today, if you look at it, the vast majority of, of satellites are now commercial. The US have about triple the number of commercial satellites over military satellites. And that's going to grow logarithmically as we see these constellations um, launched into space. So, so the complexion is really changing very quickly. So can I ask about the militarization yeah, of space? Certainly, certainly. Um, obviously, one element of that is space being used by militaries for doing things on Earth. And perhaps another element of it, as you describe the dependency on things in space for the provision of services we care about on Earth, presumably also we're seeing the potential militarization as in sort of conflicts in space. What, what What's the sort of, what's the dynamic of, of the militarization of space at the moment? So first of all, if I guess we need to distinguish in the militarization and maybe what you're also suggesting is the weaponization, because we're not we're not quite there with weaponizing space, although we probably have the nascent capabilities and who knows, there might be a couple of things in the, you know, not, not in open literature that, that are problematic in that way. So space has really been militarized since the get-go. And you're right that fundamentally it creates a series of services for the military. So communications and, and intelligence and then targeting and that kind of data. Um, in terms of an actual, let's say, conflict in space, that's hugely problematic for a number of reasons. Not, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very problematic. And, and, and states that have a lot of investiture in space and a lot of reliance on space obviously don't want to see that happening. What you get is a rather converse set of dynamics. So the U.S. being the most capable state in space also is the most vulnerable because it's the most reliant on space and it has the most invested in space. So any kind of shooting war in space is something the U.S. would really not want to see. And increasingly, it's my position, I think, that as more and more states rely more and more on space, they're going to be hesitant to, say, launch a, a shooting war in space. Despite that, we've seen a number of what we call counter space technologies being openly developed. So what we call direct ascent anti-satellite missile systems. These are not space-based weapons. They're ground-based, but have an effect in space. And so Russia and China, India now has tested one. Uh, it looks like Israel is launching a weapon that will have an ASAT capability in the near future. These are all capabilities that more and more states are launching. There's a great ambiguity about this because those systems look for all intents and purposes like an anti-ballistic missile system you know the only difference really is perhaps the guidance and radar system there's a great you know throughout space and space operations there's a great deal of ambiguity as to what's happening who has what capabilities and technology 
whether that's ground-based or in space, we're never really quite sure of what that satellite or what that particular weapon system is meant to do or can do. Um, this is a, a, a problematic characterization of space, the ambiguity that persists throughout all these operations. So, so where, the, where the dangers are, I think, in terms of conflict in space, the most likely dangers anyway, what we might consider to be non-kinetic weapons, things like dazzling, jamming, spoofing or manipulating a satellite or its signals. And in 2017, for instance, Russia was accused of, of manipulating the GPS signal in the Black Sea. And so a number of ships found themselves about seven miles off course, showing you know the, the potential then to subtly tweak these systems to give you misinformation. And that can create as many problems as perhaps destroying a satellite for, for certain states. If you, if you can't be reliant on that data anymore, that creates a number of problems for militaries. So there's a number of potentials. And I think you know what we might consider to be kinetic weapons. You know, blowing things up in space is highly problematic because of the debris. Then the, the likelihood of fratricide. If you create debris, it's more likely that you'll have more and more collisions. So they are being developed, but I see. I'm sure there'll be a great deal of hesitance before those are used. What are the current kind of rules that are operating? Can anybody put anything up in space? What What are the current rules that govern operation of of satellites and other kind of human? Yeah encounters in, in near-Earth space? So it's there's a, a number of treaties. That the, the main sort of flurry of activity, if you like, in, in terms of regulating outer space was the late 1960s, early 1970s. And we get a number of kind of cooperative agreements about space, but the cornerstone is called the Outer Space Treaty. And that's designed to limit the armament of space or the arming of space. But it's also rather non-specific in some respects. It clearly limits or bans the use of weapons of mass destruction in space and their testing on celestial bodies. But it doesn't say much about things below that, what we might call conventional weapons, or yeah, I don't know if a laser is actually a conventional weapon, but those aren't mentioned. So there's some, some lack of clarity about what it does and doesn't cover. It does specify very clearly that space is to be maintained for peaceful purposes. Peaceful is being actually interpreted slightly differently than it has been, for instance, in the Antarctic Treaty, where a certain amount of military activity is allowed as long as it's not offensive, which they had to do because there was so much military hardware by the time they, they actually passed the treaty. So we have a number of other treaties that they don't have a number of, there are very many signatories, things like the Astronaut Rescue and, and the Liability Treaty, etc. So there is a discussion about whether we need to have more or different or renewed treaties um, in space. And that's a real debate at the moment. Given the kind of geopolitical landscape, I don't think we're going to anytime soon see a Outer Space Treaty 2, if you like, or 2.1 or whatever you want to call it, given the kind of uh, atmosphere that we have today. What we did just see, though, is the, the UK sponsored a resolution in the United Nations that was passed in December. I mean, that's looking at establishing responsible behavior in space so that we do things in space that are not destabilizing. And that's what we see as a stepping stone to perhaps further agreements of different types, perhaps limited agreements, not a, a whole-scale international treaty, but that's a step in the right direction. And this is the kind of thing that we're looking at, I think, in space now are, are less ambitious, but you know, looking at in the in the right trajectory of building steps towards you know, greater governance or closer governance of space. I mean, does that does that include Questions like decommissioning or or extending the life of satellites to deal with the, the problem of space debris, which has sort of come up in our earlier discussion. So what this what this resolution, sorry, does is it is 
trying to establish a conversation about what consists of responsible behavior in space. So it doesn't actually specify what it will or won't do. It's it's really trying to push the discussion forward. But the, the area you mentioned is a, is a critical one. It's a difficult one because some states don't want things in space. Are the, are the sovereign uh, states have sovereign ownership of bits and pieces in space? So a bit of a rocket booster, it belongs to a country. Some states don't really want other states going to collect their debris because there's potential technology transfer, etc. So that's that's a rather difficult one. But it is absolutely imperative that we start to think about how we clean up debris. And we've got the, the UK company Astroscale starting um, this project. But, you know, I mentioned the point ambiguity. If you have a grappling arm or a harpoon or something on your satellite to grab something in space, of course, you know, it could be used for malevolent purposes as well. And so we're all we're all quite hesitant about, you know, using a laser to break up bits and pieces in space. Of course, there's you know, lots of potential for mischief in that respect as well. So so that's why that will be a, a rather long road, I think, but it but it needs to be it should be a fast road um, to try and get to some kind of ability to clean that up. That's very clear, kind of just overview of, of, of what's going on in space now, why we're dependent on it, and, and the sort of prospects for international collaboration and governance, which it sounds like are sort of not unhopeful, but not likely to be sort of comprehensive anytime soon because of the geopolitics of the moment we're living through. Mm-hmm. Just a final question to sort of link to what we discussed last week on this series, which is how important do you think the sort of public imagination is when it comes to governing and using space? Talked about, you know, the deep oceans and Antarctica, two, two places that are sort of seen as remote, but now increasingly kind of woven into human life. and and different ways of thinking about these, you know, are these kind of pure, pristine, fragile, in need of, of protection? Are they places for kind of adventure? Are they places for exploitation? You know, wh- how do you think the sort of the public imagination of space is playing into some of these geopolitical and governance discussions? It's an interesting one, because it's hard to say precisely, but I think, you know, our images of space being governed by, you know, sci-fi movies. And and I think maybe there's probably a, a percentage of the population that's surprised that we can't do some of these things that we see in sci-fi movies. But, you you know, the, the point you make about space being a pristine environment is certainly one that's held by a number, I think, in the public. And, and when we see the discourse in the UN, there's still that feeling that it should be. I think that's, you know, that's a long way behind us now. We've Put a lot of stuff in space, whether they're active satellites or, or space junk. Um, it's no longer pristine, and it's it's becoming quite problematic in that respect. Whether the public is very aware of the debris problem, I, I'm not sure. Again, some sci-fi movies have, I think, illuminated that that problem. Um, when the, the Chinese did their anti-satellite test in 2007, that got quite a lot of press because it created a huge amount of debris and you know, it starts to erode this notion of space as a pristine environment. But people like, I think, Elon Musk have created a very different image of space, one that maybe does go back a little bit to sci-fi, like the, the potential of space tourism and, and things like reusable rockets. These are things I think we probably expected to see many years ago, but it had just been too problematic to actually create. So, but it... You know, I think in terms of the peaceful uses of space, when we see statements like space is a warfighting domain or, or the U.S. Space Force was, was stood up, I think people are kind of still shocked by that, even though I don't think they should be. But I think you're right, the public perception is that it's not a warfighting domain. That hasn't been the case for a long time. And I think that public perception is, is starting to be eroded, maybe quite quickly. But yes, I think space differs from how we've seen and you think of some of the James Bond scenarios, et cetera. 
um, our use of space is very different than I think we've perhaps imagined in the past. If you could, on the basis of your research, put one kind of aspect of, of the governance of space sort of higher on the political or public agenda, what, what would it be? Well, I suppose ideally it would be something like arms control. But the, the problem is that's extremely difficult for technical reasons. And I mentioned the point of ambiguity. You know, there's this dual use aspect that to reliably remove arms from space is, is probably a impossible you know you could use a shadow as a weapon because it could then stop a satellite for functioning for instance but i think if you know if we could it would be useful i mean if we're thinking about um the environment the earth's environment you know space something like 50 percent of of the metrics that we use to govern that or to to measure that are all from space so you know we absolutely need access to space and any kind of collision increase in debris, any kind of conflict that could really limit our access to space. And we have to be very concerned about that. We might sort of you know, entomb ourselves on this planet without any ability to actually monitor it. And we have to be very cautious of that. Well, thank you very much, Mark. That's fascinating. And John, turning to you, you you've written the, the book on the geopolitics of the deep oceans. Um, how, do, how do we think about the geopolitics of deep oceans today? What, what's a good way into this topic? The geopolitics of deep oceans today are an extension of what was occurring during the Cold War. You know, the kind of conflicts and, and the players involved in that are the same, but with two exceptions. The first big exception is China. In the, in the 1950s and the 1960s, there were uh, submarines uh, cruising uh, underneath the oceans, uh, but it was largely uh, between the United States and Russia. Today, China. Uh, it's become a third major player. And, you know, China has the largest navy in the world. It's, it's outstripped the United States now. China is thought to probably be the first nation uh, to be able to successfully uh, engage in underwater mining. And, uh, of course, China has entered the, the Arctic, particularly, uh, well, recently, the election in Greenland, the national election in Greenland, uh, basically revolved around uh, whether they were going to lean in a direction that was more environmentally slanted, or uh, were they going to open up Greenland to the mining of uh, rare minerals in partnership with the Chinese. So th this is one big change. We'll pick up on that. But just to go back to the point that you say, you know, the history of the geopolitics of the deep oceans, as we currently kind of think of it, is is really it comes from the, the Cold War era. And, and during that time, the sort of Deep oceans are thought of in what ways? Are they kind of spaces for, for military conflict? Are they thought of in any other ways at the same time? Up until uh, the early 1950s, I'd say the predominant way of looking at deep oceans was that basically there was nothing there. And uh, it was really only in, in the 1950s that that began to change. Most of marine uh, oceanography uh, developed hand in hand with partnerships with uh, naval and military funding. And it was the strange situation where uh, they could basically do what they want, but every once in a while a situation would arise. Uh, in one case, there, there was a submarine that went missing and they had to drop everything and, and uh, go looking for that submarine. In another case, there was, there was a hydrogen bomb, luckily defused, that uh, had, had dropped into the ocean and was lost. At that point, there was a pioneering underwater uh, vehicle called the Alvin. And uh, basically, the oceanographers had to climb into the Alvin and, and look for these submarines or bombs or things like that. This has been very, very well documented in, in recent years uh, that oceanography uh, basically was, was shaped back in, in that era by defense considerations and funding. And how are the geopolitics of deep oceans framed today? 
In my book, I argue there are different ways of uh, framing this. You certainly frame it as what I call sovereignty games, basically a, a kind of a pl political chessboard. You can frame it as a resource frontier issue. You, you can uh, frame it as what I call governing the abyss, that is uh, dividing up this formerly undifferentiated space and basically uh, classifying it and uh, imposing an uh, institutional structure on it. Or the fourth approach, the fourth way of framing this is what I call saving the oceans, basically, which is uh, centered in science. And it basically says all of the, the research uh, that's come out, particularly in the last couple of decades, and some of this is, is incredible research, but basically, uh, the ocean becomes a fragile ecosystem. And uh, basically, we have to protect that uh, ecosystem from mining and military uh, exploitation and that type of thing. You, you began by saying one of the great changes that we've witnessed in, in recent years is the emergence of China as a sort of a power in, in the deep oceans. And I think you were going on to say that there's another change that we're also witnessing. Basically, in the early 1990s, after a decade or more, uh, of negotiation, the United Nations uh, finally agreed on a uh, convention on the law of the sea. And it was a very complex, involved all kinds of things, including uh, uh, piracy and, and all kinds of other things. The part of it that took the longest to negotiate, and in some ways the most important, had to do with mining the sea bottom. That's one of the things that, that's really been important. I'll talk about that a bit in a moment. But the other thing that was really important is uh, they decided to set up another uh, United Nations agency, basically that would decide on whether the nations of the world could extend their continental shelf. Um, because at the moment, you know, you have um, the 12 mile limit within uh, 12 miles of, of shore, nations have complete sovereignty. Uh, but then there's another 200 mile area coming out from shore called the, the, the exclusive economic zone, where uh, where nations have uh, not complete sovereignty, but but certainly they have a significant degree of sovereignty in terms of setting um, rules about uh, uh, fishing and, and this type of thing. Well, the United Convention of the Law of the Sea, which passed in, in, in the 1990s, and which, by the way, the United States has never signed, it made provision that a nation uh, basically could extend their 200 mile limit if they could uh, prove that their portion of the continental shelf uh, extended further out. That's, that's become a, a real center point and flashpoint in the geopolitics of deep oceans now. And, and this has another uh, really important aspect to it. And, and that is that if you're trying to extend your sovereignty through extending your portion, one way to do it um, is um, to have islands. Uh, because then you, you can then say, well, it's not only the continental landmass, uh, you can also claim an exclusive economic zone up to 200 miles off a, off an island. Well, as, as you can guess, I mean, this is, it's not the only reason, but this is one of the reasons why China is so interested in claiming islands, uh, you know, in the South China Sea or uh, even building artificial islands in the South China Sea. Um, but it's not the only nation that, that does this. Um, so a lot of the, the, the competition that's going on now is, is basically this, this extension. What one topic we've, we've touched on in, in this series it, are the ways that technologies are changing the game, as it were. Have these technological changes shifted the way that geopolitics is working out at the moment? Absolutely. And, and this, in some ways, uh, may turn out to be the most important part of it has to do with the changing nature of uh, surveillance. And this particularly uh, applies to China. Once upon a time, if you were going to, if you're in the United States, for example, and you wanted to uh, uh, have some idea of what was going on in China, you could send the uh, submarines. Uh, they would cruise along the coast 
in, in China and send back uh, data. Uh, you can't do that anymore. The Chinese have deployed a very robust uh, arsenal of uh, uh, long-range missiles and, and uh, um, what they call anti-access area denial weapons. Uh, they have something called the Underwater Great Wall, which is a, a line of sensors, which is seated you know, in, in the ocean floor, and they feed into fiber optic cable that uh, sends signals back to the surface. With the underwater Great Wall, there's an ability then to monitor uh, vehicles which uh, pass through contested waters. This has been giving Beijing unrivaled uh, information about submarine and surface uh, uh, vessel movements. If you're the United States, how do you get around this? Well, the key to it has been the use of artificial intelligence. How will the use of AI change how states frame deep oceans? It's entirely possible, and this is what some uh, defense analysts are talking about anyways, that uh, any conflicts uh, of the future are... Uh, uh, not even going to involve uh, humans. They're going to involve, for example, uh, battles between drones uh, underneath the ocean. It's hard for us to know what uh, China and Russia are uh, um, are coming up with, but information on the United States is more readily available. Um, and I mean, some of this sounds like science fiction, uh, but Rob, it is not science fiction. This this is going to be the future of uh, of warfare, uh, at least part of the future of warfare. And this is going to look very very different than the warfare that you uh, perhaps saw in the past. So this is fascinating. You're talking about actually a time of, of quite rapid change with, with the, the emergence of technologies that, that mean that the ocean floor and the, the deep oceans uh, can be accessed in different ways. The kind of legal changes in terms of nation states claiming greater share, sort of greater shares of the ocean as, as coming under their exclusive economic zone. And then, you know, related to both of those, the rise of China. So in, in that context, you're, you're painting a picture of, of, of some kind of change to, to the way that the geopolitics of oceans are working out. So going back to your kind of your idea that there are different ways of framing mm -hmm. the geopolitics of oceans, wh where do you see opportunities for sort of a positive framing, a, a kind of positive collaborative framing that is more likely to, to result in peaceful coexistence and, and careful stewardship of the oceans? Well, um, let me go back to AI. Some of the things we've just been talking about in terms of military use is uh, artificial intelligence is at the center of it. And, and uh, uh, in a case like that, you, you have to worry quite a bit that the technology is going to be used for the wrong reasons. But, um, you, you can use uh, artificial intelligence for uh, very positive reasons or very negative. What are some of the positive uh, ways that you can use it? Um, well, there's some fascinating um, scientific research that's going on at the moment. I think some of it's coming out of the University of Exeter and, and other places. Basically, um, one of the the problems that scientists face at the moment is the sheer amount of information uh, that's being gathered. Now that they're able to send down uh, submersibles and, and, and uh, basically bring back uh, millions of, of different uh, samples, analyzing them by existing means would, would take decades, but they have found ways, and, uh, and some of these are, are good up to about 90% reliability or whatever, uh, where they can uh, use artificial intelligence in order to uh, identify uh, and analyze uh, samples, biological samples that are being uh, brought up. Final question, going back to the um, the convention on the law of the sea. I mean, do, do you feel that the, the governance framework that the UN set up is, is going to manage to contain or, or manage the potential conflicts that, that you've sketched out? I mean, how optimistic are you that our current governance frameworks will, will be up to the task? Well, it has a lot of leaky holes and, and uh, really... Um, 
agency that was set up uh, that has the most teeth is the ISA, the International Seabed Authority. Uh, now, the problem with it is it, um, its its brief is only uh, the seabed itself. And then once you get above that, uh, then they don't have authority. And for example, they don't have authority over what's happening in the uh, water column. But the ISA is tasked with issuing licenses to anybody who wants to mine the, uh, uh, the ocean bottom. And there are two types of licenses. There are exploration licenses and there are exploitation licenses. If I were to recommend anything, it would be that, that uh, uh, to give more teeth to the uh, uh, ISA, uh, both in terms of uh, the, the scope of the ocean that it can regulate, but also uh, in terms of the type of things that it, it can regulate. Well, one real weakness in it at the moment is that it doesn't have any ability, uh, legal ability to uh, to regulate issues having to do with uh, biological diversity and uh, uh, particularly marine marine genetic diversity. Part of it is that there's there's fragmentation and uh, in particular between the uh, law of the Convention of the Sea, the Antarctic Treaty, uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, uh, each one of them is separate and they're not very well dovetailed with one another. And uh, as a result, uh, there are um, there are areas that are seriously overlooked. Uh, for example, um, you know, the ISA certainly has an ability to to regulate mining on the on the ocean bottom. It's trying, although not, I don't think, as successfully as it could to to regulate the environmental consequences and uh, of mining. But it doesn't have any legal uh, ability to do anything about biologically diverse species and, and uh, DNA and, and, and things like that, uh, that, that may, um, may be part of the, the, uh, a mining operation. Uh, and that, that's beyond the power of biological uh, convention, but it's not part of the uh, responsibility of the ISA. So it falls into a, a kind of an area where no, nobody has the, the legal power uh, to, to regulate you know, these kind of um, marine uh, diversity issues. It, it sounds from what you're saying that that we can expect these issues to be coming up as as topics of concern and and, and debate in, in in the coming years. And I think you've done a fantastic job of just laying out the range of range of issues which are at stake and and the different ways that they might be be thought about. Thank you, Klaus, Mark, and John, very much for joining us for today's discussion. And thank you all for listening. This is the last in our present series. So if you've enjoyed it, please do share with friends and on your usual platforms. And we're now going to take a short break and we'll be back later in the spring with more discussion of science and policy. CSAP's Science and Policy podcast is a production of the Centre for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. The series is hosted by me, Rob Doubleday, and is produced by the fabulous Kate McNeil with the excellent support of two PhD interns, Alice Millington and Anthony Lindley. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or visiting our website www.csap.cam.ac.uk. If you have any feedback about this episode or ideas for issues we could explore in future episodes, please email us at inquiries at csap.cam.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.